I think I'm on. There it is. Hey, you guys can grab a seat. Man, I am so excited right now that you guys are here tonight because it literally rained. And let's say rain is understatement. It poured at the worst possible time today, and you guys still chose to be here. So I'm extremely excited for that. But before we get started, let's give it up to the real MVPs tonight, the guys who brought the umbrellas out to get you guys, right? Yes. That is, I don't know where that came from. That was cool. Okay, so if you guys have your Bibles, you can open it up to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight is in John chapter 4. And so if this is your first time with us, hey, thanks for being here. My name is Jesse. I'm the college pastor here. And so let me just very, very quickly get you caught up on what we're doing in this series that we're calling Hello, My Shame Is. So this is a series on shame. And so the first week we came together and we gave this kind of definition or understanding of shame. And what shame is, is focusing on the gap between who you are and who you should be. So when we're here, and we know we should be here, when we focus on that gap, that's when we have shame. And we ended that night talking about how shame is not overcome by perfection. Instead, it's overcome by perspective. And so what we've been doing this entire series is talking about what the right perspective is. And so our second night together, we talked about sin. And the right perspective is that we are not labeled by our actions, but instead we're labeled by the action of Jesus and what he did at the cross. And then last week we talked about the idea of repentance and, and this idea that we often fall into this guilt mindset, which says this default setting in our lives is flawless. And so when we fall short of that, we feel guilt. And so repentance seems shameful to us. But then as we looked at the life of David, we see that he repents and he understands that his default setting is not flawless, but it's broken. And we have the right default setting and broken, then we see that repentance is anything but shameful. Instead, it's expected because we need God to fix us and we need his help. So that's where we are. So tonight, we're going to continue in this journey. And the next week, we're going to wrap it up. And we're going to be in John chapter 4 as we do that tonight. So one of the most embarrassing moments of my life happened my junior year in college that involved a bus driver, a boat race, and a really bad decision. So I was uh, a communication major over at Kennesaw State. That's where I graduated from. And so as a comm major, one of my classes I had to take was intercultural communication. And so I took that class with uh, my brother, and we had a friend who had taken that class before us, and he had told us that the teacher that we were taking for, for this class, that she was difficult. And it wasn't because the content was difficult. It wasn't because she gave a lot of workload, but she was difficult because this, this lady was crazy, right? Like, not like a literal crazy or even like a good crazy, like a crazy crazy. You guys know what I mean? And I mean, she was just like crazy. And let me just give an idea of how crazy she was. So in this class, if she asked you a question and you did not know the answer, this is what she would make you do. She would make you stand up in your seat as she continued on with the class. So everybody could stare at you and see how big of a failure you were, right? I mean, she did that to shame you. I don't know. If that's not illegal, it probably should be, right? But that's the, like, the type of crazy that she was. So you can imagine being in this class, me and my brother jumped on the opportunity to get some extra credit very early on in the semester and as a way to kind of get on her good side by going to a dragon boat racing competition, so she was involved with dragon boat racing, and if you have no idea what dragon boat racing is, don't worry, because I didn't either when she mentioned it. And so let me just give you an idea of what dragon boat racing is, right? So think to yourself, rowing, but with more people in a fancier boat. 
I mean, that's basically what Dragon Ball Racing is. In fact, we have a picture to show you, right? So this is Dragon Ball Racing, okay? So kind of idea of what's happening here. Unlike rowing, where one person has two oars and they go back and forth, here you have one person on each side of the boat and they're using paddles to move. And then the real MVP is the guy who's sitting on the drum, right? Because this guy's job is to hit the drum at the right beat so that everybody flows in the right motion. And then obviously they call it dragon boat racing because there's a dragon on the boat. And so, and, so we, and so our goal was to go to this competition and to write a paper about it. And then we got extra credit in this class. So me and my brother decided to do this right because what's the worst that can happen? Those are very famous last words. And so we, we go on a Saturday over to Lake Lanier. And so this was a legit competition because Lake Lanier is where they hosted the 1996 Olympic water games like rowing. And there were teams there like Georgia Tech who like had a legit club and like practiced and knew what they were doing. So this was like a really like a cool competition to go to and, and to be a part of. And so we show up and the first thing we do is we find her because we want her to know that we're there, right? Because we're trying to win brownie points. And so she's at a tent and she's hanging out. And so we go in there and they're having breakfast. So we just kind of join the people for breakfast. And I wish I could remember what happened next and how this transpired, but I can't. But all I know is that one moment we realized as we're sitting there in this tent that we're no longer here to watch this boat race, but somehow we're on the team participating in it. (laughs) Now, a smarter, wiser person than myself would have realized in this moment the best thing I should have done was just to stay in my lane. Right. I mean, as somebody who knew as much about dragon boat racing as you did when you walked in this room, I probably shouldn't be participating in any type of race. Right. I probably should just have gracefully bowed out. Right. Said thank you, but no thanks. And could have walked away from that situation with my pride and ego still intact. But of course, I didn't, which is why I'm telling you the story. And so we decide, um, for whatever reason, to join this team. Right. And And when you understand the type of team that we had, you know exactly why they recruited us. Because we were like the island of misfit toys. I mean, there were rarely anybody on this team who really knew what they were doing. Let me just give you an idea what kind of of team we had. So the the captain, right, the person who's sitting there banging the drum, who was sitting in the very front, who's really the person who was leading us, was the hired bus driver who they got to bring the team to the competition. (laughs) Right, like that's the level we're working with here, all right? I mean, we're competing against teams who know what they're doing and we have a middle-aged man hitting a drum telling us what to do. So that's, that's our team. And so we, we go and we, me and my brother get stuck at the front, which is a very important position because our job is to start the pace of the rhythm when the guy is hitting the drum. And so we get, we get out on there on that boat and we start this race. And it is the definition of humiliating, right? I mean, I'm in the front. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I'm trying to keep pace, and I can't. My brother's over here doing so bad that the person behind him, who's actually a member of this team, is cussing him out. And clearly, the bus driver has no idea what he's doing because he's just somebody who got wrapped into more than he bargained for when he hired for this job, right? So that's where we are. We're competing in this competition, and we were the bless their heart team out there. Right, we, we were the team that people in the audience said, oh, honey, look at that team out there still competing. I'm mean, bless their hearts. 
and everybody else is already out of the boat, but they're about halfway done. All right, so let's cheer them on. Let's go, guys. You can do it. Right, that's who we were. We were that team, and it took us what felt like forever to finally finish this race. And so we get done, and we get out of this boat, understanding very well the, very well the gap between who we are and who we should be was about 200 meters. And, and so we stand up there, and as we're just walking away from this disaster, just glad that it's over, somebody starts talking about how we have another race coming up. And I was like, not today, Satan. And I, I got out of there. I just booked it. I mean, it was just this horrible, humiliating experience. And you guys get this, right? Because we've all been in situations before where we've been embarrassed because we did something when we know we shouldn't have because our lane was clearly marked. I mean, in that situation, my lane was clearly marked because my lane was to be a spectator, right? That's why I went. That's why I decided to go to this competition, and because I had no idea what dragon boat racing was, there was no reason at all I should have been anywhere near what was going on. I should not have been participating in this. Regardless of how horrible our team was and regardless of how much I wanted to impress this professor, I mean, my lane was clearly marked, right? And we all get into these situations where our lane is clearly marked. But even though my lane was marked and it was clear, I chose anyways to do something different. And in the story that we're looking at today, we're gonna to see somebody else who also decides to step out of his lane, even though it's clearly marked. And we're gonna find out if it worked out better than, for him than it did for me. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna jump into John chapter four and see what we can learn from this story. So this story, just to kind of help you out, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he's hanging out in a place called Judea but because he's kind of having some negative interactions with the Pharisees, he chooses to travel north through a place called Galilee. So think Oxford, right? That would be Judea. Jacksonville is Galilee, right? Straight shot, straight north. But in the meantime, as he's working his way there, he decides to stop at a place in the middle. And that's what we begin reading in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. So he, being Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, to the plate of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So this is one of those stories where understanding the setting of what's happening here is just as important as the story itself. Because we see here that Jesus is in Samaria. And Samaria was a place where Samaritans lived, right? Go figure. And this is a big deal if you're a Jew. Because during this time period, Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. And for multiple reasons, right? To a Jew, a Samaritan was messed up. Because they only believed part of the Hebrew Scriptures. They only believed a part of the Old Testament. They had their own temple, and they worshiped God on a whole different mountain than the Jews did. And so because of that, they were basically a Jewish cult to them, right? They were messed up because of what they believed about God and how they practiced their religion. And see, to a Jew, a Samaritan was also dirty because they believed that Samaritans lived at a constant state, a continual state of uncleanliness. So what that meant is that if a Samaritan had touched certain food or especially if a Samaritan had drinking something and a Jew decided to drink it as well, what that meant was that Jew was ceremonially unclean 
And because of that, they had to go through the whole ritual of trying to clean themselves, right? So it was a big no-no to even eat food and even to drink and especially to touch and all that kind of stuff with the Samaritan because they were dirty. And to a Jew, a Samaritan was also inferior because they weren't fully Jewish ethnically. See, a few hundred years before this, what had happened is that foreigners had come in to this area of Samaria and they had intermarried with the Jews that were there. And that's where the Samaritans came. And so because of that, in the mind of a Jew, these people weren't fully Jewish, right? They, they might have had parts of Judaism, right? They might have parts of this interesty in them, but they did not have the full ethnic Jewish trait that a Jew would have. And so because of that, they were less than. Because of that, they were inferior. So bottom line, Jews hated Samaritans because they were messed up, because they were dirty, and because they were inferior. And see, because Jews hated Samaritans, what that also meant is that Jews avoided Samaritans. In fact, this city, Sychar, this area where Jesus is hanging out, it would not have been uncommon in this day for a Jew, instead of going straight to Galilee from Judea or straight from Galilee or Judea to Galilee, right? Instead of making that straight route, instead they would take the long route all the way around this area to bypass Samaria so they wouldn't have to interact with the Jews there or excuse me, the Samaritans there. And so these people hanging out in this city where Jesus is choosing to sit down and, and, and spend time at this well would have been totally used to Jews giving the Samaritans what we can call the Samaritan treatment. And what the Samaritan treatment was, was a Jew choosing to avoid a Samaritan because of who they were. So that's how a typical, normal Jew would have interacted with a Samaritan at this time. But let's find out what Jesus does when he comes across one at this well, right? And that's what we see and we continue to read in verse 7. It says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So Jesus is alone. And the Samaritan woman walks up. And based upon what we just found out about Jews and Samaritans, you better believe that Jesus was stepping out of his clearly marked lane when he chose to interact with this girl. And like in my story, this step out of his lane could have ended in a very embarrassing situation when his disciples came back and found out what was going on here because Jesus wasn't just talking to a typical Samaritan. And he was talking to a girl who had a whole lot of baggage. Because we saw earlier, this girl is hanging out at this well at noon. You see, during this time, that's not when women would go to the well. Instead, they'd go in the mornings or they would go in the evenings in order to avoid the heat of the day. But there's a reason that she's there at noon. And there's a reason that she's also alone, which also would have been very uncommon during this time because usually women would travel in groups when they would go to a place like this. And later on in this story, we find out why. Because based upon how this girl lived, and based upon some of the choices that she had made, the people in her town would have looked at her as somebody with a lot of shame. Right? Because she has had five marriages, as she was walking around the streets of Sychar, people would have looked at her, and they would have whispered and would have said things about her. 
And because she was currently shacking up with the guy that she wasn't married to, nobody in that town would have wanted anything to do with her. And they definitely would have been hanging out with her. And so because nobody in this town wanted anything to do with this girl, she understood what it was like to live a lonely life. In fact, that's the life that she lived. I mean, even in the eyes of the Samaritan, she was somebody who gave in to this Samaritan stereotype of being dirty, being messed up, and being inferior. And every day when she would walk to this well by herself in the heat of the day, it just gave her time to focus on the gap between who she was and who she should be. And she knew if anybody deserved to be avoided, it was her. And as somebody who was used to getting the Samaritan treatment even by her own friends and her own relatives, you can imagine how completely shocked this girl is when Jesus decides to have this conversation with her. Right? When this Jewish man decides to interact and to talk to her. And that's why what she says next makes sense, right? In verse 9. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, right? John tells us something that we just got done talking about. And so she's just trying to figure out what's happening here, right? She's trying to figure out why in the world Jesus isn't staying in his lane, right? Why in the world he is choosing to talk to her and he's not choosing to give her this Samaritan treatment. And why in the world he's even willing to take it a step further and to ask her for a drink when by doing that, that would automatically make him unclean. And so she's just trying to figure out what in the world is happening with this Jewish rabbi who's hanging out with her. Because she just assumes because of who Jesus is that she wants absolutely nothing to do or that he wants absolutely nothing to do with somebody like her. And what's interesting is what this girl is struggling with, with her interaction with Jesus and her story is also what we can also find ourselves struggling with in our story with Jesus as well. When we find ourselves wondering, why would Jesus want anything to do with someone like me? And this is especially true in the moments of our life when our shame is exposed. Because in those moments when our shame finally comes out and we finally see it, it's in those moments, if we're honest with ourselves, like this woman, we know who we are. We know that we're dirty. Because of those things that we keep doing and we want to stop, but for the life of us, no matter how hard we try, we can't. Right? We know that we're messed up because of those things that we've done in our past that we just can't erase. And in the moment, we know that we're inferior because of all those times we found ourselves focusing on the gap between who we are and who we should be. And we're called to worship this God who always is where he should be and is always doing things right. And in those moments, we understand how this girl feels because we feel like Jesus wants absolutely nothing to do with us. And see, what's crazy to me is we can hear 
a sermon that talks about this idea that God loves us, right? We can read in God's word this understanding that God wants to have a relationship with us, but we can still struggle to believe it. We can still struggle to understand it because when we look at our lives and we know who we are, we know that when it comes to our relationship with God, that we deserve the Samaritan treatment, right? We deserve for God to avoid us. We deserve to be treated as if we're dirty, as if we're messed up, and as if we're inferior. And so because of that, we struggle so hard in our mind to grasp this idea that God wants anything to do with us. Guys, I'll be honest with you. This is something that I struggle with so much in my life. Because so much in my life, I ask myself, why in the world would God want to do anything with somebody as dirty and messed up and inferior as I am? And I know in my relationship with God that I deserve the Samaritan treatment, so I just assume that's what he wants to give me. But as we continue to read this story, and we see this girl struggle in this interaction with Jesus the same way that we struggle in our interaction with him, we see that Jesus says something. He says something to this girl to show her that he is much more concerned with what she needs than about giving her what she deserves. Because in this interaction with this girl, what Jesus decides to do is to play off this idea of water that she's talking about. And as she is so confused by asking this question, why in the world would she want to drink? Jesus decides to turn it on her and talk about that. It's not that she has something that he needs, but she, he has something that she needs. This is what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, I, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus, as I mentioned, he's pulling off of this theme of water here and he's doing this because he wants to reveal to this girl a truth about himself. What he's trying to say is like physical water, he has the ability to give her spiritual nourishment and to quench the spiritual thirst in her life. And what's hilarious to me is that this girl has no idea what Jesus is talking about. I mean, she is clueless of what's happening here, right? If we were around watching her, we would have thought the same thing as if you guys were watching me in that dragon boat racing, right? It would have been a bless your heart moment for her, right? Because she has no idea what's happening. She is convinced he's talking about something different, right? Look at verse 11 with me. It says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, well, excuse me, draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As it also his sons and his livestock, right? I mean, clearly she has no idea what he's talking about. She is stuck on this idea that he is still talking about physical water, right? This living water that somehow is in this well or some other place around. But Jesus, in his perfect patience, decides to meet this girl where she is and tells her some words that we cannot forget tonight. Because this is what he says in verse 13. Jesus answered her, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
what we see in these two verses is the heart that Jesus has for this girl. We see that Jesus isn't concerned, isn't focused on giving this girl what she deserves. Instead, what he is focused on is quenching the spiritual thirst that she has in her life because he knows she is spiritually dying of that thirst. And so Jesus decides to give her what she needs. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's offering this girl salvation. That despite who she is, despite what he's done, right? Because Jesus knows, right? He knows her life. He's about to reveal that to her in just a few verses. He understands who she is. He understands that she is dirty, that she is messed up, and that she's inferior. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't want to give this girl what she deserves. Instead, he's much more focused on giving this girl what she needs. And so instead of giving her the Samaritan treatment, he chooses to give her eternal life. And we see later on in this passage that this girl decides to take Jesus up on that offer for a drink. She decides to take that living water. And she chooses to receive the salvation that only Jesus can give. In this moment, Jesus is not giving this girl what she deserves. Instead, he is giving her something much better than that. He's given her the opposite of that, actually because he's given her grace. That's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's what he chooses to give this girl in this passage. And the amazing truth, the amazing hope that we get to experience tonight is that this same drink that Jesus offers this girl is the same drink that he offers us. A drink that he can offer us because he chose not to stay in his lane but instead to step into ours. To step into the lane of dirty, messed up, and fear of people. And because he is willing to do that, he is able to go to the cross and die in our place as our substitute so that he can offer us the eternal life and he can quench the spiritual thirst that we so desperately need in our lives. And he doesn't do this because we deserve it. He does it because we need it. And that's grace. Right? The grace of God is he chooses not to give us the Samaritan treatment, but instead he chooses to give us himself instead. And what we have to understand, what we have to come to grasp with tonight is the reason that we feel like we deserve the Samaritan treatment, the reason we feel like we deserve to be avoided by God is because we do. I mean, there's one thing that is clear throughout Scripture is that the only thing that we deserve in our lives is hell. That is a bold, that is a at times hard thing to wrestle with and understand, but that's exactly what Scripture teaches is that the only thing we deserve because of what we've done is hell. We don't deserve God's love, we don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve any type of relationship with God. We don't even deserve for God to let us know that he exists. But just like this interaction with Jesus and this woman at the well, God is not concerned about giving us what we deserve. He is concerned about giving us what we need. And that's grace. And that's where grace comes into our lives. 
But until we understand this reality that the only thing we deserve in our life is spiritual death, we never will understand the bigness and the, grat- and, and, the, and, the, and the gravity and the hugeness of what grace is. Until we realize that we are those who deserve the Samaritan treatment, we'll never truly understand the beauty of the fact that God doesn't give it to us. But in his goodness and his love, he chooses to give us grace instead. And that has been revolutionary in my life. As somebody who I've mentioned struggles with this idea that why in the world would God want anything to do with me? Right? Why in the world would God care at all about somebody like me who even though I know what is right, I choose to do wrong. Even though I know what I'm called to do in my life, I constantly do something differently. That even though I'm called to worship him and to know him and to love him, I find myself nowhere even close to reaching where I need to be and reaching the standard that he has set as a Christian. I, I know that. And so, so much of my life, I've wrestled with this idea that why in the world would God want anything to do with me? And then I finally realized, man, Jesse, that's the point. And that's the point of grace. That's the point of the cross. That is the point of the empty grave, is that even though I deserve nothing, God in his love chooses to give it to me. That although I am dirty, God still chooses to forgive me. That although I am messed up, God still chooses to love me. And even though I am so much in fear compared to him, he chooses to redeem me and to give me eternal life, and I will reign with him for all eternity. And that is the beauty of what the gospel is and what finally connected in my life that was revolutionary is knowing this understanding that even though I deserve to be avoided, even though I deserve spiritual death, the God of heaven chose to step down into history and to kiss me on the forehead and tell me that he loved me. And when you understand that, and you grasp that, then you understand grace. Because we don't deserve anything. But that's the point. Because if you deserve it, it's not grace. And that's what we walk away from. That's the perspective that we're called to have as those who follow after Jesus. I mean, grace is one of those things that by earning it, you literally disqualify yourself from it. And so when we understand this idea that we don't deserve anything from God, but he chooses to give it to us anyways, he chooses to love us, he chooses to forgive us, he chooses to offer us eternal life, in that moment, we truly understand what grace is. And in those moments of our life that we're wrestling with our shame and we can't understand why in the world God would want to do anything with somebody like me, then we realize the depths of who God is and we realize the depths of God's love. And we know that he wants to offer us eternal life just like this girl. So remember, if it's something that you deserve, then it's not grace. So as we wrap up, that's the perspective shift that we have tonight. That's the perspective shift as we try to overcome the shame in our life is to remember 
that God in his love chooses to give us something that we don't deserve. And because of that, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? And so next week as we wrap up the series, that's what we're going to focus on is how, do, out of all the stuff that we talked about, and we have all this thanksgiving towards God. How do we deal with that? How do we walk away from that? But tonight, my challenge is to make that shift. And when you look at your life and you feel like somebody who doesn't deserve a relationship with God, it's because you don't. But God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to satisfy the spiritual thirst in your life. So embrace that. And allow your heart to be overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God. That even in the midst of our shame, he still loves us and he still pursues us and he still wants us. And he went to a cross so that could be possible. And let us live in that, right? As we sing these songs and we talk about the hope that we have in Christ, let us remember this reality that God's grace is bigger than we who, who we are and that there's nothing in our lives that we can do to outrun it. And let's remember that we don't deserve it because if we do, then it's not grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this amazing opportunity that we have to come together and to realize like this woman at the well, that we deserve to be treated differently. We deserve to be treated because of what we've done and because of who we are. But God, in your grace, you choose to treat us differently. You choose to love us. You choose to pursue us. You choose to have a relationship with us. So tonight, God, my prayer is that we would see you for who you are and we would worship you for who you are. And may we do this, Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray.